Dear Sir, I am writing in response to the request for information for my insurance claim. Any of you have ever had an insurance claim denied? Happens, doesn't it? Sometimes it takes several rounds. In block three of the accident claim, I wrote, trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain that statement more fully, so I trust these details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the date of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor level. Securing the rope at the ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went down to the ground and untied the rope. Anybody heard this story before? Holding tightly to ensure the slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in the block number 22 of the claim form that my weight is 150 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded up the side of the building at a very rapid rate of speed. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. By this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel then weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to the information in Block 22 regarding my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for my two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my leg and lower body. This second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the bricks, in pain, unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. <laughs> the empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it proceeded at a rapid descent down the side of the building, landing on and breaking both of my legs. I hope I have furnished enough information this time to explain why trying to do the job alone was stated as the cause of the accident. Sincerely, a bricklayer. Okay, have any of you ever tried to do a job alone? Oh yeah, it always is harder when you are working by yourself. I am sure that none of us have ever attempted to do a ministry single-handedly, right? You always need a team.
We know that God blesses us exponentially when we work together. And working together brings results so much greater than the sum of what each of us could do working by ourselves. So Paul begins our scripture passage with a play on words based on the same root word, phreneo, which means to think. Okay, so hupoferneo is to hyperthink. Anybody hyperthink? You know, it's like get really engaged in your brain. And unfortunately, hyperthink actually means to be puffed up or to think too highly of oneself, to be haughty. And then the last word is sofreno, which means to think sensibly or wisely. So, Paul urges the Romans to think sensibly, not haughtily. To not have too great of an opinion of yourself. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in according with the measure of faith God has given you. Sober judgment is the warning to not be intoxicated with your ego. Drunk people flatter and their praise is inflated and it means nothing. They want attention and they look down on others. And Paul says, don't go there. Don't do this. If you go back to verse 2 of Romans 12, it says this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Of all the things you do, what goes on in your mind is the most important. And our minds need to be renewed daily by the Spirit. A renewed mind is as loving and as humble as Jesus was. So also it says, let this mind be in you. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So the first task of a renewed mind is humility. How do we become humble? Life does it right? If there's a place where you are puffed up a little bit and think a little too highly of yourself, God is so amazing. He has a way of bringing us back down and helping us to know the truth. Long ago and far away, at a church I once pastored, there was an ongoing unpleasant task that needed to be done regularly. We needed to check in and encourage a young man who suffered immensely with a borderline personality. And he lived to have the rest of the church sucked into orbit around himself. No matter who tried to help him, eventually he would want more than that helper could give. And then he would start threatening to kill himself, which was really fun for all of us. We all worried about those suicide threats, but nobody wanted to be the responsible one who drew the boundary. So I consulted with a church member 
who was trained and experienced in psychology. I hoped that she would give me some wise counsel on how to help the rest of the church protect and serve this very disturbed young man. This is what she told me. She said, I don't interact with that man. That's below my pay grade. I didn't challenge her, but I walked away wondering if interacting with any human being, a child of God, loved by the Father, should be below any Christian's pay grade. Do we just write people off as below our pay grade? Really, really problematic. In contrast, Nick Walenda was the high wire acrobat, very famous. He understandably works in the spotlight as he's up there on that highlight, um, high wire, and he knows that it could go to his head. Understanding how ego can poison his thinking and ruin his work, as a self-imposed discipline, he waits until the applauding crowd disappears. Then he picks up a trash bag and cleans up all the litter that the crowd left behind. If you have a job that puts you up front, then you have to be sure that you're willing to do the dirty work too. I know of a megachurch who requires every musician and drama team member who is on their stage in front of 7,000 seats. That afternoon, they get to clean the bathrooms. The point is, for a true follower of Jesus, nothing should be below our pay grade. Servant leadership, even when we know exactly how we are gifted and what our primary role should be, sometimes we are required to simply join in and do whatever it takes to do what is necessary. Yes, I know my primary gifts. I could list them for you and the roles that I believe God wants me to play to bless the body. But I can never think that I'm too good or too important to weed, to wash dishes, or to simply listen to whoever wants to talk, whoever needs encouragement. The best example of the servant leader, of course, is Jesus. When dirty feet needed washing, he did not declare that that was below his pay grade that he was too wise and too important to get on his knees and serve his brothers. Whatever needed to be done, no matter how humiliating or distasteful, he took up the towel and tangibly served his people. What this means to me personally is sometimes, even though I know my spiritual gifts, I get to serve in a new way one that is not exactly a precise match. And for a season, I will do that. And I keep listening and watching and waiting for someone more gifted to show up and play that role. So before I moved to Squim, I had never taught a children's Sabbath school. I had always taught adults. Now I teach juniors. And I can tell you I love every single one of those kids. Even after five nights of Rocky Railway, as some of them were just always trying to find a way 
to be out of sight so they wouldn't have to perform the task. And I have always led the parenting group. And I always would hire and find other people to take care of the kids. But several years ago, Heidi Byers wanted to lead the parenting group, and we couldn't find anyone to watch the kids. So John and I were the kid lovers. And Jan, I don't know where Jan is, but Jan also helped in that process. What? And Aunt. Yeah. Oh, and Pam Arnott, that's right. So sometimes the thing I think I should be doing is not where the gap is. And I think God wants us to look around and say, could I do that? Well, yeah. Is it below my pay grade? No. So we can take up the towel and do like Jesus did and do whatever is needed. And you know what? I had fun as I played with those kids on Wednesday nights. I've never led a potluck team before I moved here. But I can do it. I can be the servant leader. I can do whatever I ask other people to do. So I'm going to make a radical statement. And that is the Holy Spirit is humble. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is humble? Because he doesn't mind being invisible. He doesn't mind when our praise goes to Jesus instead of him. He doesn't mind when we're focused on the Father and not on the Spirit. And I would like to say that if we are serving, but we get frustrated that nobody's paying attention, it might not be spiritual service. We might have some of self wrapped up in that. It's a sure sign that it's not a spiritual gift. We are all capable. We all have some um, strengths and some abilities. We may be able to do a ministry in our own strength and skill and even bless the body. But if we're not depending on the Spirit to focus and empower that work, it is not a spiritual gift. You see the difference? We can be gifted, but not spiritually gifted, with exactly the same task. It depends on if we are depending on the Spirit to help us do the, get the word done. We won't experience joy from our service. We will not have fun with it. We will not have fulfillment in it if we're doing it in our own strength. Because frankly, you know what I've learned? When I work in my own strength, I get tired. And when I get tired, guess what else? I get grumpy. And when I get tired and grumpy, guess what else? I get resentful of whoever is not helping me. And that's not a place I want to go. But when we depend on the Spirit, it can always be this little plea to the Holy Spirit, bring me someone to work with me today, please, Lord. Bring me someone who will wash dishes or weed or watch the, the children beside me. So it says that each of us should judge ourselves by the, the measure of our faith. This doesn't mean that I should be looking around and seeing how hard you're working and try to measure your faith. We each judge ourselves 
according to the measure of faith, not judging the faith of others. This doesn't mean we should compare ourselves. Faith should be our standard. Are we doing whatever ministry we're doing by faith, by believing that God's going to show up, that God's going to make our work be a blessing, that his spirit, his spirit is going to be in it, do we really believe that when we do our ministries? That God's going to be there and that he's going to help us get it right? Faith reminds me that everything I am, everything I have, and everything I can do is all gift. We once had a young man, Paul, who was in our church, and he had been drunk one night and wrapped his Camaro around a telephone pole. And it left him brain damaged, really severely brain damaged. He could walk, but just barely, and he could talk, but it was just painfully hard for him to form the words. And one day, I'm complaining to Paul that I have to work so hard. The weekend is coming, and I've got to write a sermon. And he looked at me and he said, Colette, I wish I could go to work. I wish I could go to work. If you have the ability to work, praise the Lord. You have more than a lot of people do, right? And if you have specialized training when you go to work, praise the Lord even more. And if your parents help pay for your education, as many of our parents have done, in Adventism, praise the Lord even more than that. The fact that we have good jobs and good minds is all gift. That's why nothing is below our pay grade. Because what we have and who we are is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast, right? So... Mature Christians know who they are in Christ. They know their gifts and they use them. But they also know that they would be nothing without grace. If Jesus hadn't loved them first, saved them, called them, and given them those grace gifts, they wouldn't be in the game at all. Christians who are spirit-filled are not puffed up with themselves. They're just grateful to be on the team. Anybody grateful to be on the team? Grateful that God can and will use you to be a blessing in this world? For Paul, the goal of self-awareness and the goal of knowing your spiritual gifts is so you will serve. As you leave the sanctuary today, you will be handed a spiritual gifts test, all right? If you have not taken a spiritual gifts test, you will think this is really fun. If you have already taken a spiritual gifts test, your gifts sometimes can change, depending on what you've been doing and what the need is that you've been filling. So don't say, I've done this already. Okay, the instructions for taking the test are very simple. You fill in the blanks, all right? Yes or no, yes or no. But don't think too hard. 
Because if you overthink a spiritual gifts test, you will mess it up. Okay, your first inclination of what your answer would be, not should be, but would be. Because if you fill it out according to what you should be, you're going to be high on all your gifts, and it's not going to tell you really which one is your true gift. So, just, so be honest with yourself. First inclination, fill it out. And as you fill it out, then you can score it. And with each of the tests is a score sheet. All right? So you fill it out. You, sc you can score it yourself. We're not going to send it off to some calculating business to give you your, your answer. You can know your answer right after you take your test. What are your highest spiritual gifts? But then that scoring key, we want you to detach from the rest of the test and put it in your Bible. And next Sabbath, Easter Sabbath, when we're celebrating the resurrection, we want you to give that little score sheet with your name on it into the offering plate. Why? Why would we want those answers of your gifts in the offering plate? Because you're giving your giftedness back to God as an offering for him to use as he sees fit. And then guess what we're going to do with them? Jay's going to tabulate them. We're going to have this major flow chart. And we're going to use that when we do nominating committee in a few weeks. Okay, you knew the nominating committee thing's coming, right? You know, okay. What we want to do at nominating committee is not just fill every position. What we want to do is set free the spiritual giftedness of each of our people. There's a really big difference in those two motives, right? And often, if you're holding back, we won't have the right person in those positions. So, so think of yourself with sober judgment. You're not too good for anything, but maybe because of the spirit, you have abilities and capabilities that this body really needs. Okay, so I want to talk for a minute about the Trinity. We believe that God is made up of three fully equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? They are all three are co-eternal. They're all three equally powerful. They're all three equally wise, equally generous, equally compassionate. When you see one, you know the others too, right? When you look at Jesus, you can know what the Spirit is like. You can know what the Father is like. Christianity is monotheistic because the members of the Godhead are one in nature, one in character, one in purpose. And yet they're distinct from each other. We find the doctrine of the Trinity throughout the Bible, but the most basic place to even look at it is the name that God often uses for himself is Elohim, which is plural. Okay? He says, I am God, but it's a pluralness in that Godhead. Because the Godhead is triunity, they have decided that when they ask human beings to represent who they are, 
that it needs to be a plural entity also that represents who they are. Do you ever think about that? That each of us as individuals, yes, we can represent God, but never perfectly. The only way that we can represent this plural trinity is with the love that we share in our plural congregation. That as people loving and working together and, and being one in unity, one in purpose, that's how we represent the Godhead. Okay, well, I can't represent the Godhead on my own, but when I get several of you around and we're working as a team, then we represent the Godhead. Just as one flower cannot be a bouquet, just as one note cannot be a symphony, so it is that not one lone person can ever represent the Trinity. Because at the heart of the Trinity is loving relationships. The Godhead is so loving, so complex, and so amazing that it takes all of us to represent who he is. Okay, are we doing it? How are we doing with that? When this triune God masterminded the church, and this is in your bulletin, and it doesn't have a place where I quoted it from because I wrote it, the Father, Son, and Spirit came up with a brilliant strategy. They created us as members to be interdependent, needing to work together to accomplish our mission. Christ followers working together will always accomplish more than lone rangers, believing, trying to live for Jesus and serve the world in their own, on their own. In active serving community, we are so much greater than the sum of our parts. You and I working as a team can do so much more than any one of us could do alone because we get discouraged, right? I had our adventurer team in my house a couple weeks ago, and I was talking about maybe I'm, gonna, maybe I'm done with children's church. Or there's not very many kids, and the kids have come. And you know what? Those ladies, in the course of about two minutes, talked me into doing children's church for a long time. You know, they told me what was going on and why it was important. And if I hadn't had the team meeting at my house to plan together, if I had been on a, a Lone Ranger thing, I would not have had my friends to give me that pep talk that I needed so much. Did you get that? Okay. So, so to be sure that we would work together, God intentionally designed each of us with some flat spots. Do you believe that? No one of us can do everything that is needed in a church to, to serve the community and to serve each other. You just can't. So we all have some places that we can't do it right unless we ask for help. All right? We have to ask for help. When I was, started working as a chaplain at Parkview Hospital in 1999, I was a technological Neanderthal. Let me interpret that for you. I did not have a single computer skill. Zilch. Empty set. I was just old enough to miss taking computer classes in high school and college. I learned on one of those electric typewriter things. You know, that you have the little strips that you can 
correct your mistakes. And I did learn to type, so that is the only thing I knew. But I didn't know how to save a document. I didn't know how to attach an email. And I, overnight, became the director of a department. I had to submit quarterly reports online and budget proposals and strategic plans. Whew, I was in way over my head. And I was well, well, well below my pay grade. I mean, I, they were paying me for something I didn't know what to do. But praise God, he had mercy on me. He provided an IT team consisting of five amazingly patient and skilled men and women. One of them was on call 24-7 because hospitals need their computers 24-7. The rest of us employees could ask for help, and they were the one that would come running. So they would. They would show me how to do something, and I would write it down. And then after a few weeks, when they realized I was really not catching on, they would take screenshots and put them in order in a little notebook. I would practice with them coaching me, looking over my shoulder. But in three days, when I needed to execute that same process again, even with the screenshot cheats, I still couldn't figure it out. So I would call them again. I had not one ounce of computer aptitude. I had an engineer for a dad. I don't get why I have such a flat spot. And I was humiliated, but I had to complete my work, and so I had to ask for help. I had their extension on speed dial, right into their little beeper that one of them would have on. And they would remotely access my computer, and they would talk to me on the phone, and they'd walk me through it, every step as they performed it. Many times they would have to bundle up and trudge across the snowy parking lot from their building to mine. And there was snow eight months of the year where we were. I'd apologize. They'd laughingly tell me I was their job security. They even acted like they liked me, which I could not understand. After literally hundreds of these encounters that where I was asked to f forced to ask to help, we all became friends. And when they would come to fix my computer, they would sit on the sofa and tell me their personal stories stories and struggles, and we would pray together. I brought them homemade cookies. I remembered their birthdays. And when I left 14 years later, I was teaching my employees all those computer skills that I had not known when I started. That brutally long, hard slog to proficiency had made me a patient teacher. When the hospital gave me a farewell party when I was moving here, every single member of the I-team came to say goodbye. And they said they would miss me. Wow, who knew it? So when the Godhead decided to give the members of the church different spiritual gifts, it was because he knew that we would represent him more completely if we were forced to work together. He knew that our first tendency would be to just simply do it ourselves if we could. It's basic human nature to be self-oriented, self-protecting, and self-sufficient. Now here's something I want you to think about. 
We compete on our strengths. We connect on our weaknesses. So when you are willing to let your neediness, your weakness, show, you're actually paving the way for whoever around you is giving you help to connect with you. So much better than if you could just handle everything. Wow. God made all of us so needy with some flat spots that none of us can do it all. He would be sure that we would need each other and ask for help, and in the process, we would actually come to love each other as those IT people did after they fixed my computer, then I could bless them. So remember what Jesus told us in John 13, 34, and 35. He said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then there is this really interesting idea. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our witness in the world is not predominantly the work that we accomplish, but the way we accomplish it. All right? So when Kurt and Steve Howe and Twyla and her team feed the homeless on Sunday mornings at the food bank, it's one thing for those homeless people to receive their, their pancakes and then their sack lunch. But even more importantly, it's how our team treats each other that they're watching and how they, tre they treat the homeless that they're serving. When onlookers see us serving each other, showing up to help in each other's ministries, truly valuing each other, it arouses within them a hunger to also belong to the body. When they see us act as loving teams, they say, I want to be in that game. I want a part. I want a piece of the action. Where can I fit in? So I'd like to propose a fascinating premise. We are not our own. It says we were bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of Jesus, right, on Calvary. We're going to really celebrate what he did for us next week. So if we are not our own, if we are bought by a price... Who do we belong to? We belong to Jesus, right? Because he bought us. Then, after Jesus bought us, guess, guess what he does with us? He gives us away. He gives us to each other. Okay? So you're bought with a price. He bought you. And then he says, okay, now that you're mine... I'm giving you to the church that you are attached to. Serve them like you would serve me. Each member belongs to all the others. Do you think about this? Have you ever thought about this? Who do you belong to? Not just your husband, wife, and kids. We belong to each other. 
I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. And you, if you belong to Jesus, you also belong to everyone you see in this room. Okay, spiritual gifts are the specific ways that God empowers us to love and serve his body, the church. Your gift is a God-given capacity to fulfill what he has asked you to accomplish. And one of the very best examples I can give of a spiritual gift is my friend Beverly from our church in Maine. Beverly was a pastor's daughter, and they would, their family would serve little tiny churches that had no music. And from the time she was about five years old, she could play hymns. She never took a single lesson. And she still was the very best pianist and accompanist we had in our big church with lots of trained musicians. She just played from the heart. She played from the spirit, and she served those little churches throughout her entire childhood without ever taking a lesson. Okay, I can't do that. That wasn't the gift he gave me, right? But maybe he gave me a different gift, and he gave you something still different. A spiritual gift, again, is a God-given capacity to fulfill whatever he has asked you to accomplish. It can be your temperament, your education, an acquired skill. It's no less of something to give to God if you did have to take lessons, right? If you had to take lessons, it still could be from God. It's, but it is only a spiritual gift if you're giving it back for his glory. Only a spiritual gift if it's consciously, intentionally practiced in his strength and not our own. It's a spiritual gift if it's for his glory and in his strength. As spiritual gifts are exercised, there is a divine human cooperation where God's spirit helps us to do more than we could ever do in our own strength. And I love this verse. It says, Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, immeasurably more, according to his power that is at work where? Within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So he's able to do immeasurably more according to his power that is within us. And this really gets exciting because it's obviously a God thing. When we use our gifts, we can expect that he's going to bless beyond what we might imagine. He blesses us as individuals, but he also blesses us as a people. It's like at the end of Rocky Railway last Saturday night, our attendance was pathetic, to be honest, and very discouraging. But you know what I looked at? I looked at how those teens had melded together into a team. I saw in our young people that the project had blessed them. Now, I'm not happy with the results, or am I? Maybe the gift was for our own kids to learn responsibility, to learn to serve, to learn that 
little, little children are really fun. You know, it's, it's, so, to him be glory. You see that right in the middle of the group, the, the verse right there, to him be glory. Don't rate yourself. Instead, just say, God, if there was any glory in, in this work that we did, may you get it. And may it be obvious it was you. These gifts help us to locate our niche, our place, and our role within the church. And these gifts help us as we use them to love and be loved and to serve and be served. It always brings a deep relational blessing. Okay, the spiritual gifts are listed in in three places in the Bible. Actually, here they have four. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Now, some of these you find on one or sometimes two or sometimes three of the lists. Some are only on one of the lists. Paul teaches these gifts to a church that was divided because they weren't grown up spiritually yet. They were using their God-given gifts to try to establish a pecking order. My gift is better than yours. Therefore, I should have a higher position and be an authority over you. And guess what Paul was saying? They all matter. They're all important. There is no hierarchy when it comes to spiritual gifts. That's something that men have imposed upon it. And Paul wants us to be sure that all believers know where the spiritual gifts come from. It says the one Holy Spirit has been poured out for them to drink. We're all baptized by one spirit into one body. Doesn't matter our nationality, doesn't matter our educational level. We all have that spirit giving us what we need. Now notice in this verse, there is not even a hint that there are exclusions. That it says, okay, so one gender is able to have this set of gifts and another gender is able to have that set of gifts. Not there. It doesn't say, educated people get these gifts, non-educated people get those gifts. Not there. It says we're all given the same spirit to drink. So age, education, income level does not qualify or disqualify anyone. All right? And sometimes, if you have lots of doctors in your church, you think all of the doctors need to be the elders. Wrong. You know, that's not the way it goes. What you do is you look at the people who have a heart for the congregation and a heart for the community, and they may not even have a college education. Okay? You look for the spirit at work. Everyone is eligible to be on the team. No one sits on the bench. No gifts are holier, better, or more important, but they're all desperately needed. So I think of our friend Botch. Don't you miss him? I really do. He had an infection that went into his bones, and even with the strongest antibiotics available, his toes wouldn't heal. And when I look at you, I'm thinking, 
even if you're just a big toe in this congregation, it is horrible to lose your big toe. It's horrible to lose even one member for any reason. When I look at each of you, I don't think about your toes. I look at your face. But your toes are really important. And the toes of this body are super important to our body's health. Every single part of our body of Christ matters. Every single member of our church matters. When one is, goes missing, something profoundly important is lost. And I think that's why so many of us are so discontent right now with church. Because we have members of our body that are still out there and not in here. Right? And it really is horrible to know that there's gifts that we all need in our congregation that are right now, they may be functioning in their neighborhood, but maybe not. We need all those people back. You know, and I feel it down in the depths of my heart. We need them back. I don't want to judge them for staying away because I don't walk with their immune system. Don't want to judge them, but we can start praying one person at a time, praying them home, right? Bringing them back, because we need this. People have disappeared, and you know what? It's not just our church. This is across Adventism and across denominations. There are only about half as many people going to church now as there was, were three years ago. Anywhere, across denominations. We've got to be serious about loving those people home and praying for them. When one gets discouraged and disappears, decides not to participate actively, it's especially bad when that person disappears because they've been criticized. And they just say, I'm not using my gifts anymore because I did and I just got dumped on. The whole body loses when that happens, and we're feeling it. Like something very precious has been lost, and there's gaps where there were once active members worshiping with us. Okay, I don't want to be negative, but woe to the one who becomes discouraged and says, my gifts are mine, I'm not using them anymore. But double woe, to the well-meaning but clueless saint who criticizes someone who has been serving and discourages them from serving again. Woe unto that person, someone who criticizes a younger person for not dressing appropriately for church. And that's happened in this congregation within the last three months. Okay? And they haven't come back. I'm sorry, that does not work for me. If you can't be nice, don't say anything. Lord, have mercy on all of us. If one arm is bleeding badly and I'm losing blood, it's not just my arm that grows weaker, but my whole body does. If one arm is working hard and is feeding my mouth, every limb will be strengthened. That's why we have to work together to keep every single member and engage them all in ministry, that every single gift needs to be supported and celebrated. No gift should be left behind. 
James Strong was a seminary graduate who was incredibly introverted, and he didn't like to preach. Kind of sad when you're a pastor that doesn't like to preach, right? He didn't like to chair board meetings, and he hated to visit. Instead, he hung out at the library. All day, every day but Sunday, he sat at a table and indexed and coded every verse in the Bible according to every word in the Greek and Hebrew roots. Now, with a computer, we could have done this fairly quickly. But James did this painstaking, meticulous work for 30 years in the 19th century. Some people chastised him for wasting his seminary education. But God had created and gifted James for a specific essential role in the church. When he was finished with his project, his book... The Strong's Concordance was printed and made available to millions of preachers and Bible students around the world. I used the Strong's Concordance. Every sermon I wrote until I figured I could do it on my phone, which was about six months ago. In fact, Mark and I, we had one really nice concordance, and we'd both be writing sermons at the same time. And that book would get passed back and forth and back and forth and back and forth as we wrote our sermons. This index allows a student of the Bible to refine a phrase or a passage or a word and directly compare how that same word was used in other places in the Bible. He helped thousands, if not millions, of preachers preach better by giving them access to the Bible. And yet everybody was thinking he was wasting his education. Okay, what we need to do is celebrate the gifts that we've got and not bemoan the fact that those gifts may not be the other place where we want them. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, all of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them the gifts to each one just as he determines. So if God gave you a gift, you are responsible to him to use it. Don't go looking down on other people's gifts. Scripture makes it clear that this diversification of ministries makes the body healthy. In fact, this decentralization of ministry is what the New Testament teaches. There's not one key charismatic strong leader. Instead, the body is strong. And actually, the Bible forbids that you put one person in charge of everything. So I can almost imagine the twinkle in Paul's eye as he wrote 1 Corinthians 12, 17, and 18. He says, if the whole body were an eye, well, then where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just like he wanted them to be. So, he gave you gifts. Here is the point. Together in Christ, we are not an eye, an ear, or a mouth. We are a body. Churches that depend on one or two or a handful of leaders are not healthy churches. Churches where everybody works together, that's what God wants from his people. 
So let's contrast this with the role of pastors and teachers found in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And Eloise, I just skipped to the next box because we're running late. It says, it was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. And then what were the pastors and teachers supposed to do? Prepare God's people for works of service. So it's not our job to do the work. It's our job to get all of you engaged and equipped to do your ministries. Pretty, pretty neat. Works of service is what we're all about. So why do we prepare the members to serve? So the body of Christ may be built up till we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So there's two things that happen when everybody uses their gift. Unity and maturity. How are we doing with that? Okay, when everyone uses the gift, that is how the church grows. And it attains to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Oh, do I just long to see that happen. So every gift is not just for the person who receives it. It's a gift of God's grace to the rest of the body. And we need to know our gifts and use them. Okay, going to skip ahead to the next box, which is top of 18. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, lists several gifts. It says, if the man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraged, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. The whole point is whatever gift you've got, use it. Don't sit on it, use it. And this is what he said in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not man. So sometimes when there's a huge crowd of people at a sports stadium, the people who have sold the tickets can give a piece of 12 by 12 paper with a design on it and hand it to the people as they're going to come and sit in the stadium. And in doing that, they can tell them at the right moment to pick up their paper and create a design. It could be an American flag. It could be the portrait of Chairman Mao. You know, there's this saying within Adventism that says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, plural, then he will come to claim them as, as his own. I believe that we each have our little piece of paper to lift to show the face of Jesus to the world. And I just might have just the tip of the chin or maybe a piece of the eyebrow. But when we are together, we're together working and we follow the directions to lift our little piece of paper, the world around us can see the face of Jesus. So, 
when you're handed that piece of paper to lift, get ready and lift it and praise God and give him the glory.